Hey guys, it's Sunday reading day, and I'm going to be reading from True Ghost Stories by Harewood Carrington. I'll be right back. Grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. How is everybody doing Especially on in California, on this wet, well, wet, wet, windy, wet, rainy night. This day has been insane. Um, well, not really. The first part of the day looked great. It was all sunny. It fooled you. It was kind of like the eye of the hurricane. It was all sunny this morning. Everything looked marvy. The birds were singing, and then this afternoon, all hell bro- literally broke loose here in California. We, you know, we get storms, but last year we had bad storms, but not like this. This is, we were in 50, 60 mile an hour winds. It's just craziness. And please uh, bear with me because the internet is still doing weird things and the power. So I may lose power yet again today. This is, I've lost power three times today. I had to go out and get some dinner, you know, because the power was out. Of course, nothing, nothing cookable. So uh, it took, it took me a while to get dinner. McDonald's is closed. Had to go to like several extra blocks to Carl's Jr. But it, it, it was so windy today that, that when I stepped out front, wind almost had the nerve to blow my hat away. I haven't even introduced myself yet. My name's Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour or so. I just feel talkative because of today. My, my adventure out in the wind today. And uh, all my garbage cans were down. I still have Christmas stuff out front and stuff was getting thrown around. Uh, my backyard actually did pretty good. My backyard is the one that floods. And then my, my, my gate was open. The wind blew my gate open, and I had a lock on the gate. That's what made it interesting. I had a lock on the gate, and it still blew open. So I had to go back into the house and get some you know, get, get some concrete blocks and lock the back of the gate to keep that shut. And uh, then my front door, it tends to open, so I had to put something against that to keep, it, to keep that shut. It was insane, really insane. I've never been out in winds like that. All the years I used to walk home from school and all that, Never have I experienced any kind of winds like that. I was out in there just to go get my dinner and come back. And I was tempted to go even over to the dollar store because I've got three lanterns. I need some extra batteries, you know, but I didn't even do that. I just, once I got a taste of what it was like out there, I thought, well, I'll go get dinner and then I'm coming straight back home because this is insane. Even Grogu fell over. See, we got no Grogu today. There's no Grogu back there. He fell out of his perch. So anyway, we're here. We finally made it. It's what, two hours later? A little after two hours later? Um, we did do the readings with medium Nancy maths. And just before the readings I did do, uh, with, 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 with one of my friends, I, I did do a meditation and during the meditation, the power went out and then it was out. And then, then it came back. We were doing readings with medium Nancy, those readings with, with Nancy maths. And while she was doing the readings, I was running around my house looking for, you know, batteries and flashlights and stuff to get ready for all this. And then, uh, right after about midway through Nancy's, she decided to do it all via phone, so she did that. And then the power went out, and it stayed out. And it stayed out stayed out until just a little while ago, which is why here I am putting this thing together. So hopefully, knock on wood, it stays on so we can get through this book. Uh, again, my name is Charlotte, and I am your <sighs> flabbergasted host because yeah, the insanity, the insanity. is going to be a lot of cleanup tomorrow here in California. A lot of cleanup. Um, so our book today... Uh, I want to make some explanation of who this gentleman is, this, 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 uh, the author, Mr. Again, I tell you, I'm so out of it today. Let me get in here. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Just oh, Mr. Carrington. I know his last name. Every time I see that name, you know what I think? Yeah. Dynasty. Harold Carrington. Okay. Harold Carrington, the, uh, division of, of, of cyclical research. This is a research team. I, I have used um, their information in my training stuff for my ghost, for my paranormal team. 
And uh, so he's he's reputable. The guy's reputable. And so he's a member of that staff. And so he, he's also a scientist. So when he's writing about ghosts and stuff, he's writing it from a scientific perspective. And these cases he's writing about are stuff that that society investigated that they couldn't debunk. So it, it should be an interesting read tonight. Okay. If you need help with a, with a ghost this day and age, you can look us up, California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team. Google us. You can find us everywhere. And we'll come out and help you. Now, California is a big state, so it might take us a couple extra days to get to you because, like I said, it's huge. But we do have psychics on staff who can do that for us. And they and and uh, it, in most cases, they can settle things down. Okay? But uh, we can get out to you, so if that's the case. If you're watching from Facebook tonight, and a lot of you are, please be sure to hit that follow button because we are always looking for followers. If you're watching from YouTube, and some of you are, hello, Michelle. Please feel free to hit that subscribe button, okay? Because, uh, because we're always looking for subscribers. And feel free to comment in the chats, in the chat room. Feel free to leave us a happy face, thumbs ups, you know, all that stuff because it puts us higher in the FYP on both Facebook and Twitch and on all Facebook and Twitch and YouTube. And that gets us out to more people. If you happen to be home this evening, because it is 8 o'clock p.m. for some people, it's late at night for some people on the East Coast, put your feet up, put your feet up, put your slippers on, relax, grab some hot cocoa, coffee, whatever you drink, and bring the whole family in. We're going to be telling ghost stories. We're going to be some ghost stories tonight. Okay? So I will read from this book for about an hour, and then uh, maybe we'll chat a little bit afterwards. Uh, that's assuming the power doesn't go out. And if, if you lose me, then you know that's what happened, that the power went out. Because not only, you know, I have AT&T as a backup, but not only did the power go out, the internet went out and AT&T's internet went down. So I could not come back on. Okay? So you never know, because this, this is really weird. In fact, Xfinity wasn't supposed to be on till after 10.30 this evening, but here we are, right? So, yeah, and I can see it up in my left-hand corner over here. I'm still getting the, the, those Xfinity bar things uh, over by the, the count of people watching the show. So, you know, that's going on. All right, so here we go, and welcome to the show. And uh, let me look at some comments here real quick before we get rolling. I see we're back. All right, in bed and jammies, that's what we want to hear. That's what we want to hear. People in bed and jammies watching me, and, you know, Pamela over there, she... She does her housework. She puts me in her pocket and walks around with me all the time. Whatever floats your boat, right? I'm just teasing. All right, so let's get into this. So like I said, we're going to get an interesting book. It's kind of like my, my, my paranormal team. We're going to get the scientific part of these stories, and then we're going to get the actual ghost stories that these guys have investigated. So you're going to get a little bit of both with this. And bear in mind that, you know, this book was written in like um, eight, in the 1890s. So it's, you know, it's going to be kind of, kind of, wishy-washy as far as information back then as opposed to information now. But I can tell you, there's a lot of ghost hunt teams, including my own, that use a lot of these techniques that these guys talk about in these books. A lot of them. So, uh, yeah, these, these are what we call the great gods of the paranormal. This is it. You know, these guys in this in this, in this society. Ooh, excuse me, this society. So, here we go without... Have a little sip of my little drinky. <laughs> Should we play music? Play a little music? Okay. Anyway, so let's get on with the show. Shall we? Let me uh, take one more look at these things. Okay. So here we go, you guys. And uh, I didn't think I was going to be able to get on the way things were going today. So here we go. We are reading from True Ghost Stories by, Her by Harewood Carrington. All right. And I do not have a clock to go by, so I am going to be checking my watch from time to time. I may enlarge this thing a little bit so I can watch the clock on here because I'll be going back and forth trying to see what time it is. So it is now approximately 8.15 and we'll be going to 9.15 p.m. Pacific. So here we go, guys. True ghost stories. Maybe. There we go. Okay. First chapter. What is a ghost? So here we go. And like I said, we're going to get scientific explanations and then we're going to get this, uh, some stories in between as like explanations. So let me blow this up so even my blind eyes can read it. Ghosts have been believed in. Okay, ghosts have been believed in by every nation, at every time, and at every stage of the world's evolution. No matter where we may go, we find them stalking through the pages of history. He's got some appendices here. One, and even in our own 
cynical and materialistic age, we not only find ghosts still, but the evidence for their existence is stronger than ever. It is nonsense to say that no sensible person believes in ghosts, because many thousands of them do. Why do they believe? Would they believe if they had no cause to do so? Okay. The little one here says, see Appendix A. So I'm assuming this is Appendix A. The terror of the dark, which we all have more, which we all have more or less, from which every child suffers, now intensely, during its early years. A terror which is, to a certain extent, shared by animals and even insects. Does all this signify nothing? Those who have looked into this question thoroughly believe that there is, in every truth, whoops, I went up too high, a terrible reality justifying this instinctive fear, that evil and horrible things lurk about us in the still, weird hours of the night, that there are truly powers and principalities with which we often toy, without knowing or realizing the frightful dangers which result from this tampering with the unseen world. Yes, there is a true tyranny of the dark. Phenomena and ghostly manifestations take place in darkness which would never occur in the light, and which cease when a light is struck. All ghostly phenomena are associated with darkness and the wee small hours of the night. All this is exemplified in the following interesting narrative, which I may entitle The Terror of the Dark. Quote, All my life I have been afraid of the dark, said an acquaintance to me the other day, when we were discussing cyclical matters. I know that it's childish, he continued, and I ought to have outgrown it years ago, but as a matter of fact, I haven't. After all, isn't there some reason for fears that we all feel, more or less, at that time? Doesn't the Bible speak of the terrors of the dark? And are not all animals, or, and even insects, afraid of the dark so much that you cannot induce them to enter a dark place if they can help it? Light not only enables you to see what is around you, but it acts in a certain positive manner over the powers of darkness, whatever they are, and prevents their operation. All spirit mediums will tell you that materialization and manifestation <clears throat> of that character cannot take place in the light. It prevents their occurrence. So, after all, as I said, isn't there some reasonable ground for one's fear at such times? I said nothing, but gazed into the fire. After all, were not his arguments somewhat impressive? But, continued my friend, it is not altogether because of these speculative reasons that I fear the dark. It is because of a terrible experience I once had, and which has left me terror-struck ever since, whenever... I am left without light, even for an instant. I'll tell you the story. I'll let you judge for yourself. It was several years ago, in an old house we rented at the time, and from which we removed soon after the event I'm about to relate. I was afraid of the dark, even then, and always left a nightlight on, burning by the side of my bed when I went to sleep. One night I woke up, feeling the springs of the bed on which I was lying vibrate in a peculiar manner impossible to describe. Looking up, I saw, standing by the side of my bed, a young man dressed in rags, having a face ghastly white and showing every indication of dissipation. He was regarding me intently. I shall never forget the shock I received on beholding that figure, not only because of the unexpected appearance, but because of the fact that I could perceive the opposite wall and furniture through the body. I knew at once that I beheld a spirit, and my blood ran cold at the thought. What I had dreaded all my life was at last fulfilled. My next thought was, I'm so glad the nightlight is burning. What should I do if I were in darkness? As though the form read my thoughts, and was intent on torturing me to the limit of endurance, it leaned over, and the next instant had snuffed out the candle. The phantom and I were alone in the black darkness. Words cannot describe my feelings at that instant. The blood froze in my veins, and the tongue and the tongue claved to the roof of my mouth. I tried to speak, but could not. I only held out one hand, as if to ward off the awful presence by pressing it away. The next instant, I felt the bedclothes gently turned down on the farther side of the bed and partly pulled off me. The springs of the bed were depressed, and I knew that the fearsome visitor was crawling into bed 
It would lie down by my side, perhaps touch me. Perhaps who could tell? The agony of, uh, of mind I experienced in those few moments I shall never forget. My only wonder is that my reason did not give way. Then a curious thing happened. Even in the state of mind as I was then, I could perceive that the bed was gradually rising up again into the normal position. The weight upon it was growing less and less. Finally, it was again level, and I felt the bedclothes carefully replaced over me. The phantom had withdrawn. For hours, I lay awake, not daring to move. After what seemed a century, the first faint shafts of light fell across the room, welcoming the morning. Finally, glorious day broke. Glorious light, hateful darkness. Cannot you see why I hate it so? But, fortunately, this evil and horrible sight of Ghostland is not universal. <clears throat> Ghosts do not always present themselves as so formidable and gruesome. Some of them prove helpful. Others seem to wish to right a wrong. Some even seem to have a sense of humor. So there are all sorts of ghosts, just as there are all sorts of people. And the variety is just as great in the one case as in the other. What is a ghost? But after all, what is a ghost? What do we mean by this? Where do ghosts live and how? What do they do with themselves? How do they manifest? Why do they return? There, these are some of the questions which the average man asks himself, unless he totally disbelieves in them. Most men, it is true, disbelieve in ghosts, unless they have had some experience to convince them to the contrary. Yet, after all, why should they? As Mr. W.T. Sneed once remarked, real ghost stories. How can there be real ghost stories when there are no real ghosts? But are there no real ghosts? You may not have seen one, but it does not follow that, therefore, they do not exist. How many of us have seen the, the microbe that kills? There are at least as many persons who testify that they have seen apparitions as there are men of science who have examined the microbe. You and I, who have seen neither, must preface, must, must perforce, I'm sorry, take the testimony of others. The evidence for the microbe may be conclusive. The evidence as to apparitions may be worthless. But in both cases, it is a case of testimony, not a personal experience. The average conception of a ghost is probably somewhat as follows. That it is a thin, tall figure, wrapped in a sheet, walking about the house, clanking chains behind it, and scaring out, out of its wits anyone who sees it. According to this view, a ghost must be as material and substantial a thing as a buzzsaw or a lapdog, and exists just as fully in space. Such, however, it is not the conception of the ghost which modern science entertains. Many investigators who have examined this question closely have come to the conclusion that ghosts do actually exist. But, when we come to the more troublesome question, what are they? We are met at once with with difficulties and disagreements. The recent scientific theories and explanations of the subject are complex and subtle and necessitate a certain preliminary knowledge on the part of the student in order for him to understand them. I shall explain as briefly and clearly as possible exactly what these theories are. For the moment, I wish to speak, first of all, of the history of psychic investigation, and particularly that portion of it which deals with apparitions or ghost hunting. Now remember, this is the late 1800s, you guys. Historic investigations. Here and there, serious investigators have always existed. In the 16th century, Dr. Glanville pursued this study with such genius and patience. Dr. Johnson also was a firm believer in the reality of ghosts. Sir Walter Scott and others of his time were investigators the famous Dr. Perrier wrote a treatise of apparitions, and similar investigations have been continued up to the present day. The first had organized a systematic attempt to solve the problem and to find out exactly what ghosts are, however, was made by the Society of Cyclical Research, SPR, in 1882. Practically all the investigations which have been carried on since then have led to important results. Soon after the above-mentioned society was founded, a material began to be collected. 
and material began to be collected, it was found that many cases had to do with haunted houses, many with apparitions. But the greater number of them hinged around the one point, the coincidence of apparition within the death of a person's representative. An apparition of a certain person would be seen in London. Let us say, and some hours later, a telegram would arrive, conveying the news that this person had just been killed. When the time was compared, it was found to agree exactly. The hour of the death and that of the apparition tallying to the minute. Chance, you say? Perhaps so. One case of this character might be explained in such manner. But could 50? Could 100? It became a question of statistics, of figures. These alone could answer our question. Before considering these, however, let us give you a few examples of cases of death coincidences so that the reader may see the character of the evidence presented. He may then appreciate the value of great mass of such evidence when published in extenso. Okay, make sure my audio is working. Do I have good audio, you guys? Just want to make sure the audio is working. Okay, just checking. I've done this whole show with no audio before. Okay. <laughs> All right, here we go. Death coincidences. Quick drink. It's iced tea, guys. Okay. Caffeine. The first case <clears throat> we take is from M. Flammarion's book, The Unknown, page 108, as it follows. My mother, who lived in Burgundy, heard one Tuesday, between 9 and 10 o'clock. The door of the bedroom opened and closed violently. At the same time, she heard herself called twice. Lucy, Lucy. The following Tuesday, okay, yeah. The following Tuesday, she heard that her uncle Clementon, who had always had a great affection for her, had died that Tuesday morning, precisely between 9 and 10 o'clock. In the following instance, the notification is in visual instead of auditory form and is taken from the Proceedings SPR Volume X, pages 213 to 214. About the 14th of September, 1882, my sister and I felt worried and distressed by hearing the death watch. It lasted a whole day and night. We got up earlier than usual the next morning, about 6 o'clock, to finish some birthday presents for our mother. As my sister and I were working and talking together, I looked up and saw our young... I saw our young acquaintance standing in front of me and looking at us. I turned to my sister. She saw nothing. I looked again to where he stood. He had vanished. We agreed not to tell anyone. Sometime afterwards, we heard that our young acquaintance had either committed suicide or had been killed. He was found dead in the woods 24 hours after landing. On looking back to my diary, I found that the marks I made in it corresponded to the date of his death. <clears throat> and another one. The following case is reported in Podmore's Apparitions and Thought Transference, page 265. The first Thursday of April, 1881, while sitting at tea with my back to the window and talking with my wife in the usual way, I plainly heard a rap at the window, and looking around, I said to my wife, why, there is my grandmother, and went to the door, but could not see anyone, and still feeling sure it was my grandmother, and knowing that, though 83 years of age, she was very active and fond of a joke, I went round the house, but could not see anyone. My wife did not hear it. On the following Saturday, I had news that my grandmother died in Yorkshire about half an hour before the time I heard the rapping. The last time I saw her alive, I promised, if well, I would attend her funeral. That was some two years before. I was in good health and had no trouble, age 26 years old. I did not know that my grandmother was ill. Okay. Reverend Matthew Frost. Mrs. Frost writes, I beg to certify that I was perfectly, that I perfectly remember all of the circumstances my husband has named, but I heard this on nothing myself. Okay. So the following case is from Phantasms of the Living, volume two, page 50. On February 26th, 1850, I was awake for I was to go to my sister-in-law, and visiting was then an event for me. About two o'clock in the morning, my brother walked into our room, my sister's, and stood beside my bed. I called to her. Here is... 
He was at the time quartered at Paisley, and a mail car from Belfast passed about that hour, not more than a mile from our village. He looked down on, on me on us most lovingly and kindly and waved his hand, and he was gone. I recollect it all as if it were only last night it occurred, and my feeling of astonishment, not at his coming into the room at all, but where he could have gone at that very hour he died. Mr. Gurney writes, We have confirmed the date of death in the Army list and find from a newspaper notice that the death took place in the early morning and was extremely sudden. Cases such as the above could be multiplied into the hundreds, but it's not necessary. For our present purposes, the above samples will at least serve to show the character of these death coincidences, and how accurate and how numerous they often are. Are they due to chance? The cause of death coincidences the cases of death coincidence came in so thick and so fast that sometime after its foundation, the Society for Cyclical Research published an enormous book in two volumes called Phantasms of the Living, which contained some 702 cases of this character. The possibility of chance coincidence was, was very carefully worked out, and it was ascertained that the number of collected cases was many thousand times more numerous than chance alone could be could be supposed to account for. A connection of some sort was thought to be proved. But objections at once began to be heard. In order to prove your point, you must collect a greater number of cases than this. You must get more facts before we can consider your point proved. So the investigators again set to work and carried on a far more extensive investigation in several countries, covering a period of several years. The results were the same. After collecting some 30,000 cases and calculating the number of death coincidences contained in, those, in this manner, it was again proved, and most conclusively, that the number of coincidences was far more numerous than could be accounted for by any theory of chance. Professor Sidgwick's committee, therefore, signed the following joint statement as a conclusion of their lengthy report. Quote, between deaths and apparitions of the dying person, a connection exists which is not due to chance alone. This we hold as a proof fact. End quote. These are weighty words. They represent an important forward step in our investigation of these, of these involved and complex questions. Something takes place at death which serves to unite in some sort of spiritual bond, the dying and the still living relatives of friends. What is this connection? And what may it be supposed to consist? Here's an explanation. For an explanation, we must begin by going back to experimental thought transference. We know that it's possible under certain conditions for one person to affect another, otherwise than through the regular avenues of the five senses. This telepathic action between mind and mind is now pretty well known and operates more or less throughout life. By means of this, it is occasionally possible for one person to impress a scene or a picture upon the mind of another, so that the other shall see before him, as if it were in space, a vivid mental picture of the scene in the other's mind. This being so, it seems plausible to suppose that it might be possible to convey the impression or picture of oneself to another, since this may be supposed to be most precise and best known picture we have. Would it not be possible, possible to think of one's own appearance so intently as to cause a mental representation of it to appear before another person, distant, some miles away? Apparently, this has been done many times. Experimental apparitions of this character have frequently been induced. Accounts of a few which will be found in this volume. The picture is mental. In such a case, it is an imaginative creation. It is hallucination although it is caused or created by another distant mind. It was, it is true, a hallucination. But as it was induced by telepathy, we have for such apparitions the name of, of telepathic hallucinations. It is this theory of telepathic hallucinations which is invoked to explain many of these cases of death coincidences or apparitions of the dying. The following types of experimental apparitions are good examples of this ability to induce a phantasmal form of, of a, at a distance by willing to do so. Neighbors banging. As to the nature of this figure, 
There is as yet no, no, no unanimity of opinion. Some authorities preferring to believe that such cases represent merely an extension of the power of thought transference known to us. Others, on the contrary, contending that such cases prove the existence and traveling powers of the astral or spiritual body. Of this, however, more later. Here is a case of this nature experienced by the English investigator, the Reverend William Stainton Moses, who cooperates the following account, which is furnished by the agent. One evening, I resolved to appear to Z at some miles distance. I did not inform him beforehand of the intended experiment, but retired to rest shortly before midnight. My thoughts intently fixed on Z with those rooms and surroundings. I was quite unacquainted. I soon fell asleep and woke next morning unconscious of anything having taken place. On seeing Z a few days afterwards, I inquired, Did anything happen at your rooms on Saturday night? Yes, he replied. A great deal happened. I had been sitting over the fire with, with M, smoking and chatting. About 12.30 he rose to leave, and I let him out myself. I returned to the fire to finish my pipe, when I saw you sitting in the chair, just vacated by him. I looked intently at you, and then took up a newspaper to assure myself that I was not dreaming. But laying on it down, I saw you still there. While I gazed without speaking, you faded away. In the case that follows, the initials are only used, but the writer of the account was known to the officers of the SPR who vouched for the general trustworthiness of the writer. On a certain Sunday evening in November 1881, having been reading of the great power which the human will is capable of exercising, I determined with the whole force of my being that I would be present in spirit in the front bedroom of the second floor of a house situated at 22, in which room, I just jumped it up, I slept, in which room slept two ladies of my acquaintance, namely Miss L.S.V. and Miss E.C.V., aged respectively 25 and 11 years. I was living at the time at 23 Kildare Gardens, at a distance of about three miles from Hogarth Road, and I had not mentioned in any way my intention of trying this experiment to either of the above ladies, for the simple reason that it was only on retiring to rest upon this Sunday night that I made up my mind to do so. The time at which I determined to be there was nine o'clock or was one o'clock in the morning, and I had a strong intention of making my presence perceptible. On the following Thursday, I went to see the ladies in question, and in the course of my conversation, without any allusion to the subject on my part, the elder one told me that on the previous Saturday night she had been much terrified by perceiving me standing by her bedside, and that she screamed when the apparition advanced towards her and awoke her little sister, who also saw me. I asked her if she was awake at the time, and she replied most decidedly in the affirmative. And, upon my inquiring the time of the occurrence, she replied about one o'clock in the morning. This lady, at my request, wrote down a statement of the event and signed it. Mr. Gurney, one of the authors of The Phantasms of the Living, became deeply interested in these experiments, and requested Mr. B. to notify him in advance on the next occasion when he proposed to make his presence known in this strange manner. Accordingly, March 22, 1884, he received the following letter. Dear Mr. Gurney, I'm going to try the experiment tonight, making my presence perceptible, at 44 Moreland Square at 12 p.m. I will let you know the result in a few days. Yours very sincerely, S.H.B. The next letter, which was written on April 3rd, contained the following statement, prepared by the recipient, Mrs. Ellis Verity. On Saturday night, March 22nd, 1884, at about midnight, I had a distinct impression that Mr. S.H.B. was present in my room, and I distinctly saw him, being quite awake. He came toward me and stroked my hair. I voluntarily gave him this information when he called to see me on Wednesday, April 2nd telling him the time and the circumstances of the apparition without any suggestion on his part. The appearance in my room was most vivid and quite unmistakable. Mrs. A.S. Verity also furnishes this cooperative statement. I remember my sister telling me that she had seen S.H.B. 
and that he touched her hair before he came to see us on April 2nd. The agent's statement of the affair is as follows. On Saturday, March 22nd, I determined to make my presence perceptible to Miss V at 44 Moreland Square, Donning Hill, at 12 midnight. And as I had previously arranged with Mr. Gurney that I should post him a letter of the evening on which I tried my next experiment, stating that time and other particulars, I sent him a note to acquaint him with the above facts. About 10 days afterwards, I called upon Miss V, and she voluntarily told me that on March 22nd, at 12 o'clock midnight, she had seen me so vividly in her room, whilst wide awake, that her nerves had been so much shaken, and she had been obliged to send for a doctor in the morning. These cases will at least prove the possibility of such a thing as experimental apparitions, and explain them as they may, as we may. They are, at all events, most interesting and significant. They prove the reality of, te of telepathic phantasms, of apparitions produced in another by the power of mind. This is, at least, the modern conception of the facts. Okay. Next section is telepathic hallucinations. How may the theory be said to work? How can a telepathic impulse from a distant mind cause a picture to appear in space and, as it were, before the recipient? Here is the last word of modern science in this direction. Here is the theory which has been advanced to explain puzzling cases of this character. When we look at and see an object, the sight centers on the brain are roused into activity. Unless they are so aroused, we see nothing. And whenever they are so aroused, no matter what, the what no matter from what cause, we have the satisfaction of sight, we see. But we get no further than this. We do not reason about the things seen or analyzed, or think to ourselves, this is a red apple, I like red apples, etc. No, we only see or perceive the object. All the reasoning about the object takes place in the higher thought centers of the brain. A diagram will perhaps help to make all this clear. There's an illustration I don't have. When light waves coming from the eye, A, travel along the optic nerves and excite into activity the sight centers at B, we have the sensation of sight, as before said. Nerve currents then travel up the nerves going from B to C, and in these higher centers they are associated and analyzed. And we then reflect upon the thing we see, etc. This is the normal process of sight. Now, if the eye or the optic nerves or the sight centers themselves become diseased. We still have the sensation of seeing, though there is no material object there. We have ordinary hallucinations of all kinds, delirium, tremens, etc. If the sight centers are stimulated, as much as they would be by the incoming nerve stimuli from the eye, we have full-blown hallucinations. Now, it is obvious that one method of stimulating the sight centers into activity is for a nervous current to come downwards, along the nerves running from C to B. It is probable that something of this sort takes place when we experience memory pictures. If you shut your eyes and picture the face of some dear friend, you will be able to see it before you more or less clearly. The higher cyclical centers of the brain have excited the sight centers into a certain activity, and these have given us a sensation of dim inward sight. If the stimulus were stronger, we should have cases of intense visualization, such as the figures which occur in the crystal ball, etc. They begin, they being doubtless produced in this manner. Although the sluice gates, so to speak, running from C to B are therefore always open, slightly, they're never open wide. It is not natural for them to be so. But if, under any great stress, thought or emotion, the downward nervous current were as strong as an ordinarily running from A to B, then we should appear to see as clearly the object would appear, just as solid and real and outstanding to us as any other entity. We should experience a full-blown hallucination. All this being so, it is the most natural to suppose that one method by which cyclical sluice gates could be more widely opened would be under the impact of a telepathic impulse. If we assume that this is, in some manner, arouses into instantaneous and great anxiety the higher cyclical centers see. These would probably communicate this to impulse B downwards along the nerve tracks connecting the two 
or to the hearing centers when we should experience an auditory hallucination and hear our name spoken. If the, in this way, we can account for a telepathic hallucination originating in this manner. It is surely to be supposed that, at the moment of death, some peculiar quickening of the mental and spiritual life takes place. The peculiar flashes of memory by those drowning, etc., seeming to know this. So then, we arrived at a sort of explanation of many of the cases of apparitions occurring at the moment of death, for we have shown them to be telepathic hallucinations. This is also the correct explanation, doubtless. There are many cases in which apparitions of the living have been seen in which a phantom or a phantasm of a living person has appeared to another during sleep or in hypnotic trance, etc. But how about those ghosts which appear sometime after death? They at least cannot be explained by any such theory. What has been said by way of explanation of these cases? I will be remembered, it will be remembered that telepathy is the, is, is the basis of the explanation thus far. Let us extend this. We have only suppose, we have only to suppose that the spirit of man survives the shock of death, and that it can continue to exert its powers and capacities also. For, if a living mind can influence the living by telepathy, why not a dead one? Why should the surviving spirit of a man continue to influence us by telepathy? If they could, we still could have cases of telepathic hallucinations induced from the mind of a discarnate not an incarnate spirit. The ghost might still, be a tele might still be a telepathic hallucination. And if several persons saw the figure at once, we should, on this theory, have a case of collective hallucination, in which one mind affected all the rest equally and at the same time. Ghosts which can move material objects. This is fascinating stuff, you guys. Such is the theory rather far-fetched. It is true, but certainly the most rational and common sense so far advanced to explain many of the facts. It is probable, however, that this explanation will not serve to explain all of them. This, in those cases where the apparition moved a material object, opened a door, etc., such a theory would have to be abandoned for the simple reason that a mental concept of hallucination cannot open doors and move objects. There must be an outstanding material entity to affect this. There must be a real ghost. And in the cases, and in those cases where the apparition has been seen by several persons at once, or even photographed, it seems more reasonable to suppose that a material space-occupying body was present rather than to assume that the various witnesses or the camera were hallucinated. In the following cases, for example, the apparition performs a definite physical action snuffs the candle with its fingers, an action which pure hallucination could hardly be supposed to perform. The account is by the Reverend D.W. Gwynn, M.I., and is printed in Phantasms of the Living, Volume 2, page 202-3. After telling of certain minor phenomena, he proceeds. One drink, then I'll proceed. Okay. I now come to the mutual experience of something that is as fresh in its impression as if it were the occurrence of yesterday. During the night, I became aware of a draped figure passing across the foot of the bed toward the fireplace. I had the impression that the arm was raised, pointing with the hand towards the mantelpiece on which a nightlight was burning. Mrs. Gwynne at this moment seized my arm, and the light was extinguished. Notwithstanding, I distinctly saw the figure returning towards the door, and being under the impression that one of our servants had found her way to the room, I leaped out of bed to intercept an intruder, but found and saw nothing. Mrs. Gwynne confirms the story, adding, I distinctly saw the hand of the phantom placed over the nightlight, which was at once extinguished. Okay. Photographs of ghosts. Again, it is claimed that ghosts have sometimes been photographed, though very rarely. In a number of cases, attempts have been made to photograph ghosts seen in haunted houses. But, though the figures have been seen by old present, the photographic plate has failed to record any impression of phantom. In other cases, on the contrary, definite impressions have been obtained, and though there is doubtless much fraud among professional mediums, 
who claim to produce profe professional mediums, professional mediums, who claim to produce spirit photographs, there are more cases on record in which no professional medium was employed and in which the faces certainly seen upon the developed plate. Experiments have also been made in photographing the body at the moment of death to see if any impression could be made upon the plate by the soul. It is passage from the body, and, though many of these have proved negative, Dr. Barduc of Paris has obtained a number of photographs which have never been explained. Again, numerous researchers in the region of so-called thought photography have given some basis for the belief that thought may be, under certain conditions, photographed, as for example, in the experiments of Dr. Orchowitz and others. It may be said, therefore, that some progress is being made in this direction by psychic investigators, particularly by the French observers, who are far ahead of the rest of the world in these branches of psychic investigation, and that, with increased sensitiveness of film and plate, and greater perfection of lens and camera, it is to be hoped that the time is not far distant when it will be possible to photograph the unseen just as we photograph moving persons. Now remember, guys, these are cameras from 1800s, and like he says, they're plates. They're those old cameras, the poof ones that, you know, that you see in the movies. There are ghosts, therefore, which are hallucinations, and there are ghosts which are genuine phantasms. The real article, okay, it becomes a question in which instance of, of sifting through the evidence, finding out which they are, yet if, they are, if, they, if there are real, objective, outstanding ghosts, how can we explain them? And what do they consist? In short, we are back to our original question. What are ghosts? The devil and the spiritual body. Before we can answer this question satisfactorily, we must consider one or two preliminary questions. First of all, we must speak of the devil, the astral or spiritual or, or ethic body, which resides in man as well as his physical body. Two. The sophists, the theosophists, distinguish between all these various bodies, psychic students strive, for the most part, only to prove the objective ex existence of any one of them. St. Paul constantly emphasized the fact that man has a material body and a spiritual body. This inner body is the exact shape of the physical body, its counterpart, its double. In life, under ordinary conditions, the two are inseparable, but at death, the two, the, the severance takes place and man continues to live on in this etheric envelope. This inner body has been studied very carefully by students of the occult. And a good deal is now known about it, its comings and goings. Its composition and its method and the method of a departure and death. For our present purposes, however, it is enough to say that such a body exists and that it is the vehicle man continues to use and manipulate after his death and his departure from this planet. It so happens that, under certain peculiar conditions, the inner body of man is capable of being detached or separated from the physical body. This usually occurs in trance, sleep, hypnotic, or mesmeric states, or may be performed experimentally by some who have cultivated this power in themselves. When this body goes on such excursions, leaving the physical body practically dead to all appearances, it may be seen by those in this immediate vicinity, just as a material body would be, if they are sufficiently sensitive or receptive. The following interesting case, recorded in Phantasms of the Living, Volume 1, page 225-226, is a good example of the apparent traveling of the body to another place and the perception of that body by a second person who happens to be there. Two individuals, at all events, shared the same experience, which is otherwise hard to account for. The case is reported by the Reverend P.H. Newham, and is as follows. In March 1854, I was up in Oxford keeping my last term in lodgings. I was subject to violent neurologic headaches which always culminated in sleep. One evening, about 8 p.m., I had an unusually violent one, but it became unendurable. About 9 p.m., I went into my bedroom 
and flung myself without undressing on the bed and soon fell asleep. I then had a singularly clear and vivid dream, all the incidents of which are as clear in my memory as ever. I dreamed that I was stopping with the family of a lady who subsequently became my wife. All the young ones had gone to bed, and I stopped chatting to the father and mother, standing up by the fireplace. Presently, I bade them good night, took my candle, and went off to bed. On arriving in the hall, I perceived that my fiancé had been detained downstairs and was only then near the top of the staircase. I rushed upstairs, overtook her on the top step, and passed by two, and passed by two arms over around her waist, under her arms from behind. Although I was carrying my candle in the left hand when I ran upstairs, this did not, in my dream, interfere with this gesture. On this I woke, and the clock in the house struck ten almost immediately afterwards. So strong was the impression of the dream that I wrote a detailed account of it the next morning to my fiancé. Crossing my letter, not an answer to it, I received a letter from the lady in question. Were you thinking about me very specially last night? Just about ten o'clock, for, as I was going upstairs to bed, I distinctly heard your footsteps on the stairs and felt you put your arms around my waist. Mrs. Neham wrote to a confirmation of this account, which was also published. What happens at the moment of death? In all these cases, of course, the psychic body of the subject returns and reanimates the physical body. For if it did not do so, death would take place. When death does actually take place, this is what occurs, and psychics and clairvoyants assert that they are able to see and follow this process perfectly, and many of them have described exactly what takes place at the moment of death. The following description, for example, given by Andrew Jackson Davis, is taken from his and after death and the afterlife, page 15 to 16, and is as follows. Suppose the person is now dying. It is to be a rapid death. The feet first grow cold. The clairvoyant sees over the head what may be called a magnetic halo or an ethereal emanation. In appearance, golden and throbbing as though conscious. The body is now cold up to the knees and elbows. And the, and the emanation has ascended higher in the air. The legs are cold to the hips and the arms to the shoulders. And the emanation, though it has not risen higher in the room, is more expanded. The death coldness steals over the breast and round on either side. And the emanation has attached a higher position near the ceiling. The person has ceased to breathe. The pulse is still, and the emanation is elongated and fashioned in the outline of a human form. Beneath it is connected with the brain. Beneath it, it is connected with the brain. The head of the person is internally throbbing, a slow, deep throb, not painful, but like the beat of the sea. Hence, the thinking faculties are rational, while nearly every part of the person is dead. Owing to the brain's momentum, I have seen a dying person, even at the last feeble pulse beat, rouse impulsively and rise up in bed to converse with a friend. But the next instant he was gone, his brain being the last to yield to the life principle. The golden emanation, which extends up midway to the ceiling, is connected to the brain by a very fine line, life thread. Now the body of the emanation descends, then appears something white and shining, like a human head. Next, in a very few moments, a faint outline of the face divine. Then the fair neck and beautiful shoulders, then, in rapid succession, come all the parts of the new body down to the feet. A bright, shining image, a little smaller than his physical body, but a perfect prototype of the, or reproduction in all except its disfigurement. The fine life thread continues attached to the old brain. The next thing is the withdrawal of the electric, of the electric principle. When this thread snaps, the spiritual body is free and prepared to accompany its guardians to the summer land. Yes, there is a spiritual body. It is sown in it is sown in dishonor, and raised in brightness. It is doubtless the spiritual body which is the true cause of many apparitions, of many ghost stories. It is the body which is seen by the seen or percipient in many a ghost story. It is this body which removes objects and touches 
the individuals who sees the ghost. This body is detached at death, as we have seen, and afterwards is free to rove at its own free will. Apparitions of the dead might thus be accounted for, while all those cases of apparitions of the dying, which are with difficulty explained as due to pure telepathy, might also thus find their explanation. The spiritual body, freed from that moment, would manifest its presence to the distant recipient as it did after death. So far, so good about how that apparition is living. How do we explain those cases in which the apparition of a living person has been seen when the spiritual body is supposedly safely attached to the physical body? Many of them are doubtless cases of telepathy. But in those cases, which seem to demand the presence of a body of some sort, we may suppose that the spiritual body may become detached at times under certain, certain peculiar conditions from the material body from which it inhabits and animates and can then manifest independently at a distance. The following cases are illustrations, apparently, of this fact, showing us that the etheric body can manifest on occasions at will at a distance from the physical body. How the soul may leave the body. I put the light I put out the light and returned, but no sooner had I done this than I could feel a creeping sensation moving at my legs. I got up and lit the gas and went back to bed, with pillows arranged in such a way as to make me comfortable. In a comparatively short time, all circulation ceased in my legs, and they were as cold. Hang on a second. Okay, I went to, they were as cold as those of the dead. The creeping sensation began in the lower part of the body, and that also became cold. There was no sensation of pain or even a physical discomfort. I would pinch my legs with my thumb and finger, and there was no feeling of, or no indication of blood whatever. I might as well have pinched a piece of rubber, so far as the sensation produced was concerned. As the movement continued upward, all at once there came a flashing of lights in my eyes and a ringing in my ears. And it seemed for an instant as though I had become unconscious. When I came out of this state, I seemed to be walking in the air. No words can describe the acceleration and freedom that I experienced. At no time in my life had my mind been so clear and so free. Just then, I thought of a friend who was more than a thousand miles distant. Then thought that I seemed to be traveling with great rapidity through the atmosphere about me. Everything was light and yet it was not the light of the day, or the sun, but, I might say, a peculiar light of its own, such as I have never known. It could not have been a minute after that I thought of my friends before I was conscious of standing in a room where the gas jets were turned up, and my friend was standing with his back toward me, but, suddenly turning and seeing me, said, What in the world are you doing here? I thought you were in Florida. And he started to come toward me, well, I heard the words distinctly. I was unable to answer. An instant later, I was gone. And the consciousness of the memorable things that transpired that memorable night has never been forgotten. I seemed to leave the earth and everything pertaining to it and enter a condition of life of which it was absolutely impossible to give here any thought I had concerning it, because there was no correspondence to anything I had ever seen or heard or known of it in any way. The wonder and the joy of it was unspeakable. And I can readily understand now what Paul meant when he said, I knew a man, whether in the body or out of it, I know not, who was caught up to the third heaven and saw things which it is not possible to utter. In this latter experience, there was neither conscious of time nor of space, in fact. It can be described as more of a consciousness of elastic feeling than anything else. It came to me after a time that I could stay there if I so described, desired. But with that thought came also the consciousness of the friends on earth and the duties they required of me. The desire to stay was intense, but in my mind I clearly reasoned over it. Whether I should gratify my desire and return to my, my work on earth. Four times my thought and reason told me that my duties required me to return, 
but I was so dissatisfied with each conclusion that I finally said, now I will think and reason this matter out once more, and whatever conclusion I reach, I will abide by. I reached the same conclusion and had not much more than reached it when I became conscious of being in a room and looking down on the body popped up and propped up in bed, which I recognized as my own. I could not tell what strange feelings came over me. This body, to all intents and purposes, looked to be dead. There was no indication of life about it, and yet here I was apart from the body, with my mind perfectly clear and alert and the consciousness of another body to which matter of any kind offered no resistance. After what might have been a minute or two, looking at the body, I began to try and control it, and in some very short time, all sense of separation from the physical body ceased, and I was only conscious of a direction, of a directed effort toward this use. After what seemed to be quite a long time, I was able to move, got up from the bed, dressed myself, and went down to breakfast. I may add that the friend referred to as having been seen by me that night was also distinctly conscious of my presence and made the exclamation mentioned. We both wrote the next day relating the experiment of the night, the experience of the night, and the letters corroborating the incident crossed in the post. Such strange things certainly tend to prove that the human spirit can leave its body and, and rove abroad at times. And if this is the case, it shows us that our body is far more detachable than we usually suppose, and hence that it can probably continue to exist after the death of physical body, when it is detached altogether. Once this is proved, all objection to the reality and existence of the objective, ghosts will have then done, been done away with. Theories of Haunted Houses If we grant that certain houses may be haunted, in the sense that they may be the centers of influences and forces, as yet unseen of unknown, the question is, how to explain such cases? What hypotheses can we advance to explain cases of haunted houses which will recognize the reality of the phantoms witness therein, and attempt to explain them as rationally as possible? Four main theories have been advanced by way of explanation, which I shall briefly outline. One, there is the theory that the figures seen in houses of this nature are genuine, outstanding entities, real beings, which are just as real, though less solid and tangible, as any of the living inhabitants of the house. This is, of course, the popular conception of the ghosts seen in haunted houses, and it must be admitted that such a theory covers and explains the facts more completely and fully than any other. There are also many facts telling of it in its favor. For instance, when two persons see a figure from different angles or viewpoints, and one describes it in profile, while the other describes it as presenting a full face likeness, and if this is, is the angle in each case from which a real figure would naturally be seen, this surely seems to indicate that a solid form of one sort was present. Again, when three or four or more people see a figure at the same time, it is surely a strain upon our credulity to believe that the number of persons were similarly hallucinated at precisely the same time and in the same manner, and easier to believe that they all saw a figure at the same time, though in differing degrees of vividness and detail. Thirdly, we have evidence from the photography. In some instances, these figures have been photographed, and though there is doubtless much fraud in this connection, there is evidence that, in certain cases, genuine photographs of this nature have been taken. This is discussed elsewhere in this volume, however. Fourthly, we have the behavior of animals in haunted houses. They often appear to see figures visibly or in, visible or invisible to others present at the time, bark at them, rub against them, stare at them, act as though terrified at what they see, etc., this will be noticed in many of the stories and can be explained only with difficulty if we are to believe that the figures seen are merely hallucinations. All right, guys, we're going to stop there. Next section is the ghosts of animals. So we're going to be getting into that. Um, I'm glad you guys stuck with me. I'm real excited to have you guys have, you know, for everyone that stuck with me to listen to this, I really appreciate it. I think this is cool because it's looking at, 
you know, scientific uh, explanations for this stuff as well as psychic explanations. So I think I think this stuff's pretty cool. Pretty, pretty cool. Let me check you out here in the comments. Ectoplasm, yeah. The Fox sisters. Yep, 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 yep. Yep, yep. So, yeah, so we're going to keep reading this book. And, uh, well, thank you, Michelle. Michelle, that goes for merely for becoming a... Yeah, you know, there's always going to be people. There's always going to be scientists. You know, but there's scientists. There's a difference. There's scientists like these guys who, you know, aren't only looking to maybe, I'm not going to use the word debunk, but are looking to explain this stuff. There's scientists like these guys who are looking to do some explaining on the logical explanations on this stuff, but they're also looking at the activity, you know, where they're not, they're, they're not um, putting everything down, right? They're not shutting it all down because they've done enough in their studies to say, Hey, there's stuff that we can't explain. That's what I like about this, this particular society. And that's what I'm liking about this book already. Okay. So we will continue this book, and I don't know yet, on Wednesday night, um, the guest that was scheduled is sick, so I don't know what's happening Wednesday night yet. I may read the book, and so be ready for that. Otherwise, we will continue next Sunday with this book, and this is going to be a great a great book to read. Good knowledge you know, that we're going to get out of it. But I want to thank you all for coming tonight. I really appreciate it. I know it's late for a lot of you, so uh, we're going to sign off here, and I've got to try and get some more guests, so I'll be taking a short break and then back to back to work at it. To, to book some really cool guests for the show. Tomorrow we're going to have Lynn Monet is going to be with us, our old friend Lynn Monet. And we're going to be talking about fairies and, 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 and fairies and other folk like that. So join us for that. Lynn Monet says she, she's, uh, she's come in contact uh, with some fairies and uh, some, some different beings like that. So we're going to have a discussion about that tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. We'll be back our usual time and all that good stuff. So thank you all for coming tonight. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We're just trying to get the word out about California Haunts Radio, and hopefully we do, and it seems to be working in the RSS feed and everywhere else. All right, guys, I'm going to call it a night. And Michelle, thank you for being here. Pamela, I know Marisa's out there somewhere and quite a few others. Thank you all for coming and joining tonight. I'll see you tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a great evening, guys.